From Sattva Knowledge Institute, this is Decoding Impact, the podcast where we apply systems thinking in conversation with extraordinary experts to understand what it truly takes to scale solutions in the social sector. Decoding Impact is hosted by Ratish Balakrishnan, a co-founder and managing partner at Sattva. Welcome to today's episode. India has a significantly low women workforce participation rate with over 80% of the women out of the workforce. Only 2.5% of women are employed in the formal sector. The rest of them lack decent working conditions and access to minimum wages. The worrying sign is that things seem to be getting worse. India slipped 88 places from 112 to 140 in the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report 2021. The reasons for the skewed labour workforce participation are due to a wide range of socio-cultural factors. According to PLFS 2021, nearly 80% of the women attribute their absence from the labour workforce to being engaged in domestic duties, making the unpaid labour economy a central theme for the discourse on women's economic participation. In this podcast episode, we want to understand the challenges behind low female labour workforce participation and deep dive into the methods to understand and address some of these challenges. To discuss this, we have Sona Mitra with us. Sona is currently the Principal Economist at iWage and lead at Kriya University. Sona specializes in research on gender and labor development, economics, public policy and labor statistics. Sona, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Ratish. Thank you so much. So this is a very, very important topic. And uh, I was recently reading how when you look at the contours of countries that have achieved significant economic progress, uh, one of the crucial factors across countries like even Bangladesh and China is really the role of women in the economy. That when the market or the economy is poised to grow, the percentage women that are already in the labor workforce has a significant impact on how far are economic returns amplified and how well does that impact poverty? So I'm so glad I'm talking to you about this topic. And, uh, you know, the numbers have been quoted multiple times. And I've often felt that the deeper nuances between behind this issue has not been discussed as much. Yeah, so a lot of our discussion, I'd love to sort of get into some of the weeds with you since you've spent so much time thinking about it. Before we get into the topic itself, Sona, I'd love to hear from you about your background so far. What have you done and what has brought you here uh, to this conversation? Uh, thanks, Ratish. Thanks for setting up the context on this uh, very uh, on this topic, which is very close to heart. And I've been into uh, this topic for uh, since the time I was a student considering doing a PhD around this topic. And uh, it was around um, in the early 2000s when the entire discourse on you know um, the developing asia and uh, china getting actually the femi- uh, the workforce getting feminized especially in the manufacturing sector um where feminization was very much ap- apparent in china and other southeast asian countries and if, even in south asia india was an exception it wasn't it was globally very very well, well integrated around in the early 2000s and uh, continued to be integrated with the 
global um, uh, trade and uh, uh, global trade patterns. But uh, we could see that there were exceptions in the Indian trends, which were not following the patterns, usual patterns of what we find in Bangladesh, in Sri Lanka, in China, other Southeast Asia. And that is, and, and it is around from then onwards. So it's almost two decades since the time I have spent in um, actually looking at the trends in women's workforce uh, participation, women's and women's labor force participation in India and uh, try to understand the reasons behind uh, this uh, low level um, rigidity that is uh, there in the uh, labor force participation participation rate of women in india there are several several factors that influence the the this rigidity but uh, so so yes i am an economist by training i have not done anything else ever other than economics since my undergraduate and um, i have been uh, associated with the initiative for what works to advance women and girls in the economy for the last four years now since its inception and i thought uh, when 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 the initiative was being launched i thought that was the place because it was actually uh, questioning uh, about i mean centered around questioning all the reasons around women's labor force participation, something that I have been doing at that period for the last one and a half decades. So it seemed very right for me to be in the place. And yeah, that's a brief thing about me. Thank you, Sona. Thank you so much. I wanted to talk to you about the point that you made, and I think the word you used was rigidity, right? Um, and because it is always, uh, you know, the it's always understood that okay in developed countries women are working and so on but when i read about as you rightly made the you know made the point even in countries like sri lanka bangladesh etc which have been at some point part of india the subcontinent uh, or have the same cultural context um, it then becomes harder for us to understand and explain why do we have the behavior we have in india today can you maybe tell us a little bit more about the point on rigidity that you mentioned what are some of the structural constraints that are stopping women to be part of the labor force so South Asia has always had a very different history than compared to the other parts of the world. And uh, it has been, uh, and the colonial history was very important. It influenced a lot of the economic structures of the country, which are uh, things that have taken very, uh, I mean, a long time to actually have been overcome by uh, the economic development and the rapid economic growth that we have had. But in some cases, we have seen that these economic growth patterns have actually excluded some of the marginal uh, uh, sections of the population. Women's labor force participation, I would consider as one of the marginal um, elements that got excluded in this entire growth process of the region. And um, um, while Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, India, Pakistan, more or less, shares very similar social norms and social and cultural practices, um, also are very homogeneous in terms of the uh, of their other cultural habits. I would say that there is a traditional and conservative um, practices that are uh, present in all these countries, which has pulled back women for a very long time. Now, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh has seen, has experienced a very different way of including women into their labor force. In India, because it's a very uh, big country and parts of Sri Lanka resemble the south of Indian, the, the, the south, south of uh, India, the practices there, and Bangladesh being more closer to the eastern Indian practices. Um, so, so those uh, also uh, those also vary, right? And therefore, what we find is that uh, this rigidity around low labor force participation in India 
is actually a historical thing uh, which is embedded in its cultural practices. While Bangladesh, Sri Lanka in a different context has been able to transcend that, in India we have a lot more to do in order to be able to uh, move a little more ahead on women's labor force participation. Before I come to India, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued by what you said, which is they found another way to integrate uh, women. Uh, you know, there has been a lot uh, written today about Bangladesh, uh, you know, participation of women in garment industry that has thrived, etc. Sri Lanka in a different way. And I think I find this fascinating that you mentioned about how these countries are neighbors to a context of India, which is Sri Lanka to the south of India, where, you know, th there might be more similarities, Bangladesh to the east. Two questions from my side. One, it'll be great to hear, uh, you know, any insights from your side on how have they actually integrated uh, women in the workforce? Are they lessons for us to learn from? And two, uh, from what you said, even in India, do you see a skew in the labor force participation and the social norms and behaviors that are dif distinct for south to the east to the north? And is there something to learn from that as well? Yes, I'm going to basically answer, I think you'll get your answer from your first question. The second question would be answered as I answered the first part uh, in terms of how, what has happened in Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. So Sri Lanka is very, very, the Sri Lankan, uh, if, you, if you look at the states of Tamil Nadu or um, uh, Andhra, these are uh, two states with higher work, uh, workforce participation rates of women in India. Sri Lanka uh, and, and close to the numbers that we see in Sri Lanka. Now, what has happened in Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka has also globalized in a way that India has, but the globalization has been done in different ways. So the Indian uh, global um, integration pattern was very much linked with the um, you know, uh, the globalization was driven by the service sector, especially the IT related banking, finance, very tertiary sectors. Whereas in uh, Sri Lanka, we find that the globalization was actually driven by the manufacturing, the industrial sectors, and also a service-led uh, globalization where there was a very high rate of migration and, of women, and migration of women. So therefore, the work participation rates of women in the industrial sector, especially when they were um, integrating themselves with the global export-oriented sectors of garments and electronics in Sri Lanka, those sectors actually started absorbing a lot of women into the workforce. And that uh, increased the work participation rates in the country. Also, Sri Lanka became a great uh, place for out-migration of women into the Gulf countries as domestic helpers. In fact, they started giving competition to the Philippines. And if we look at how uh, Sri Lanka has used the opportunity of out-migration of women uh, as uh, women uh, workers, as domestic help in the Gulf countries, we would find that there are actually, they, they, they actually train their women. Uh, there are centers, there are a lot of impact. And those centers are not only private centers. Those centers have been uh, started by the um, you know, this uh, entire um, push by the government in terms of training women to learn uh, using household appliances, gadgets, how to be a 
qualified, trained domestic help who would be basically out migrating and earning remittances for the country. And that also, in a way, increased the participation rates of women. So here we have the industry and the services globalizing in a different way in order, and, and that resulting in increasing women's work participation. In Bangladesh, on the other hand, and 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 uh, women have always been working in Tamil Nadu. Uh, if we look at the history of the South Southern Indian women, women's workforce participation has always been higher. Uh, women have worked outside the households, and it is very similar. It was very similar in Sri Lanka, and that helped transcend this. Uh, and 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 globalization basically facilitated this um, entire uh, context of women being able to move out easily. On the other hand, in Bangladesh, a primarily agrarian economy like we have in uh, West Bengal, Odisha and Bihar, um, women are very much uh, uh, integrated into the rice fields. And uh, in Bangladesh, on the other hand, actually, the, the two things I would say that helped in pushing women out of agriculture into the other sectors, one was definitely the push in the export-oriented garment manufacturing, which actually involves a whole lot of women. And this is also observed in some parts of India, uh, localized increased increases in women's work participation where there are um, very, very connected, globally integrated export, uh, export zones or export-oriented garment manufacturing setups. For example, Tirupur in uh, Tamil Nadu. So we find this uh, this very similar, what similar to what, what happened in Bangladesh, that the uh, global garment manufacturing industry bloom, blossomed a lot, bloomed a lot. The government, of course, uh, provided uh, a lot of um, efforts. I mean, the efforts of the government in terms of facilitating export-oriented, I mean, export industries, export garment, garment export industries to come and set up their businesses, come and set up their workshops, factory floors in the country, helped in pulling women out of those rice fields into the garment sector sector. Also, the second thing in Bangladesh was the microfinance initiative that, that, the, that the Grameen Bank initiative that uh, actually took Bangladesh by a strong storm and a large section of the beneficiaries were women who went into this uh, Grameen Bank uh, microfinance initiative, set up their own cooperatives, own self-help groups and really moved out of agriculture, which is something that could not happen in the other Eastern Indian context like West Bengal, Orissa or Bihar. So, of course, economic growth, globalization policies, policies to um, push export-oriented growth pattern, all of this affected. And hence, we find the difference where Bangladesh could also transcend and include more women into the workforce, whereas we could not do that in India. Women constitute 48% of the country's um, want to understand this a little bit more deeper. One, as you were talking, uh, something that I realized, and this is something I've read uh, before, is that over a period of time, socially, some industries become acceptable for women to be a part of, you know. And actually, uh, they, they mentioned that, that that sometimes results in decline of men coming into those industries. And as those industries thrive, the, the participation of women in the labor force starts to thrive. So you gave the example of garments, uh, you know, in Tamil Nadu, that's been the case. It's true in uh, Bangladesh as well, uh, services sector uh, and so on. So one, I just wanted to confirm that with you to say, is there, in the way we think about women labor force participation, is there a way to sort of look at which industries are most friendly for women socially 
and helping those industries specifically grow for us to be able to drive this number one and two i wanted to um, also ask you uh, that there is also an underlying norms uh, around migration of women to another country for example uh, you know singers uh, sri lanka is able to do it they even train women for it etc i don't know if there has been any research that helps identify how these norms shift or get established in the country where it becomes acceptable for a society to be able to allow that to do uh, for it to happen uh, at scale so two questions one is more on the supply of job side which is are there uh, in is there a way to make industries that are women friendly to scale is that a strategy for us to look at labor force participation the other one is more a demand side which is uh, are there ways sri lanka has addressed this whole norms and behaviors uh, or bangladesh has done it where we have something to learn from if you ask me that why some sectors are friend, gender friendly uh, women friendly i would say that it stems directly from history if we look at the historical activities of women i will find that even in the glo- global north and this i'm talking about uh, the period uh, very 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 uh, long ago in the initial days of capitalism when the factory system was being set up even in those countries some factories actually started to get women into bring women into the factory shops the work the, the factory shop floors and those factories were essentially the garment factories because one is that women were generally trained in and they were also comfortable in dealing with garments and textiles because women would otherwise at home produce uh, uh, yarns uh, spin yarns produce uh, clothes and also stitch and that kind of work the activities that the skills that they already had which was very useful for some of the garment uh, factories and women were being absorbed now when these garment factories during the globalization period from the 1970s 80s 90s the peak period and the best period of the globalizing economies when these um, uh, big chains started shifting their production to the developing uh, world for example in the latin american and the southeast asian economies the developing asia that we call uh, when they started shifting one of the important uh, things was that they had an experience of dealing with women working on the shop floors uh, working on the factory shop uh, sweatshop uh, on in the sweatshops and also there was a large number of women workforce which was uh, we, we, uh, workforce available to work on in these factories at very cheap wages because these women were working in the field and they were underemployed the returns from the rice field or the agrarian field was much lesser and when they got into the um, factories they would earn better they would live a dignified life they would uh, have an increase in their decision making powers within the families and the families also uh, households enjoyed the earn uh, the incomes that women would bring from the factories and uh, this this there's a whole range of uh, widely researched areas in all this which actually show that women uh, in garment is a very historical thing and that has developed the and that has helped the uh, export oriented garment industry so much that women have been captured the women the reserve army of women have been captured and they have been really useful in terms of um, uh, pushing this entire uh, you know um, um feminization of the uh, garment industries so that uh, that that is all that is already 
there. In the current context, what we can see is how, I mean, and coming to your question about how those which, uh, those were um, transcended, those norms and challenges, I think that the entire uh, question of being able to earn incomes, and that is a very crucial factor, earn incomes from activities is something that actually has helped in challenging norms in all always. And that helped in women being able to participate in the factory shop floors. And uh, once they did it for the garments, then there were a range of factories that women thought were very safe for them. And there were demands from the uh, industry also. For example, electronics, where they needed nimble fingers for of women to really assemble small but uh, uh, small, small elements in the, you know, in the uh, electronic uh, uh, goods. And it started from watch factories, from TV, television, and went up to the mobile phones, the smart gadgets and devices, where the nimble fingers are needed, women with nimble. And those demand from the sectors actually also helped women, helped in um, pulling women into some of the industries. Now, once those um, inhibitions were broken initially at the garment uh, factories, it actually worked for women to move from one sector into another. This is very interesting, uh, uh, and Thank you. Uh, you know, I am from Kerala, and I can, as you were talking, I was also thinking about how nurses from Kerala are today an acceptable profession for migration. I don't know if there is a general, uh, you know, norm change, but if you're going to be a nurse or a teacher, for example, there is a greater social acceptability of pursuing that occupation both in your local economy or outside. And uh, the same thing is for out-migration to the Middle East in Kerala, right? And so it's fascinating to see how some of these uh, behaviors and norms are maybe not generic, but there is a legitimacy to a particular industry that then allows women in Orissa to move to Bangalore for jobs or apparel, women in Kerala to move to as nurses to the east of India, etc. And, uh, and I want to touch upon this at a later point in time and come back to this when we talk about solutions. You gave us a fascinating view of uh, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. If I had to sort of ask you to zone into India now and talk about what is missing and what are the norms. And I think that will probably lead us to the unpaid work conversation. But before we get there, what are some of the structural challenges socially, economically today that are stopping women to work in India? Okay, so I think it's a, it's, I mean, this has to be answered in nuances, but I would say, uh, I would answer it in two parts, actually. If we look at the problem of women's labor force participation in India, there is a pro problem of low labor force participation in India. And that is something that has been with us since independence. We have not really been able to uh, increase the labor force participation of women, even despite the fact that India has been one of the growing, most uh, rapidly growing economies in the world from 2000 to 2012, it actually was resilient to the global financial crisis. It was uh, um, it, it it did not get affected as badly as the global north during the very bad period of global financial crisis. Um, but what we did during that period was something where uh, we could have actually focused on 
you know, including more women into the labor force, thinking of the problem of low labor force participation of women very seriously, and maybe given a boost to the manufacturing industries. Even when we were uh, growing rapidly, the growth was coming, and you would know it better, because the growth was coming from the IT-enabled uh, services, the service sector, the tertiary sector, very high value-added sectors. India was excelling in software development. All of these sectors are very high-skilled sectors, very high-value return sectors, and these sectors were those which inherent, I mean, intrinsically did not have the ability of absorbing labor. These are very low labor-intensive sectors, and in that, of course, the space for uh, women are very less. And therefore, what we found was, while we were globally integrating as fast as possible, while we did not focus on manufacturing industries, especially sectors like food processing, which could have grown, as like garments, which could have been as developed as the Sri Lankan and the Bangladesh or the Vietnamese or the Thai, uh, Thai and uh, Cambodian um, garment uh, industries. It developed for the local markets, but did not do so well in the export-oriented sector and therefore did not expand so well, like uh, even like Turkey. So we missed that boat where we could have actually also been able to absorb or feminized the manufacturing sector. That's one. The second part, we started talking about women's work participation when we saw that that lower level was also started starting to decline. And we got alarm bells in 2011-12 when we saw that, as you rightly said, that it went below 20% mark. Now, that was an alarm bell that what is happening because the World Bank came out with a report that if we are losing out on women's participation, India would actually lose incomes worth tri in trillions of dollars, like $2.9 million would be something that would be added to the Indian GDP if the uh, the, uh, female labor force participation could be raised by just two to three percent. So that amount, so that kind of opportunity costs were being talked about. And that is when the entire focus went and really started speaking about women's labor force participations declining. Again, here we are at a point after 10 years of that discourse is that we are talking about bringing in more women into the labor force in several manners, but, but we are not really talking about how to challenge and how to think of it really in the uh, long term to keep a sustainable way of having a women's labor force, which is over 30 to 35%, which is going to really put, again, we put India on a high growth path. So my entire understanding or my entire thing about women's labor force participation is not only about empowering women, it is also a, a lot about um, being able to get into the economic growth path, the high economic growth path. So that is where also the entire question of low labor force participation as well as declining labor force participation of women becomes very, very important. This is very useful, Sona. And I want to pick up the first point that you mentioned because I really like what you said there about not thinking of this as just an agency of the women problem. It's a very important issue, but it's not the only issue. It has to tie into the economic growth path of the country more in, in a more integral manner. And the two things that you said, which, is, which I thought were important, and I want to build on that. The one point that you mentioned was the fact that industries that have grown 
in the you know decades that we've preceded us uh, you know have not included either industries that are inherently uh, you know uh, women friendly or efforts haven't been made to make them more women friendly so food processing as you rightly said phenomenal opportunity just given our agricultural output hasn't happened i know there's been an, a conversation many many years and i was part of a a bunch of policy planning exercises in 2014 and 17 where they talked about food parks but they haven't taken off as much uh, as you also rightly said we have lost our competitive edge uh, to in garments uh, to countries around us over the years it's actually been declining in terms of our factory output uh, one one is really that and the two uh, and i think it's another extremely important point is that it's not sufficient if an industry satisfies only domestic markets because growth rates in such industries are often going to be limited and job creation is going to be limited it is really when you are connected to global markets and have an export focus that true job creation actually happens you know which we have seen in it services uh, today uh, which is partly the reason why we really have a middle class in india which has grown because of that i wanted to sort of push that idea a little further and get your thoughts uh, on are there industries that you see today where you think that there is an opportunity to actually unlock more jobs and be relevant to both the domestic markets and the global markets and i want to get your thoughts specifically sona on one of my favorite uh, you know areas which is the healthcare sector you know um, covid has actually made it very clear that our uh, you know allied health workforce industry uh, is far less equipped to address the demand that we have domestically even uh, you know forget global there is a growing global market for health professionals uh, and it is uh, from whatever i see and understand and also where i come from an industry that is women friendly is there a real opportunity for us to look at the healthcare sector given just a the continuum of jobs that are available from home nurses right up to doctors from a skill level given the focus on gender in the sector and the gender friendliness given the rapid demand that is growing both in india and global for us to sort of look at that as an opportunity to increase women labor workforce participation number one and apart from healthcare if there are other sectors that you think are ripe for such focused efforts for us to improve labor workforce participation i'd love to hear that from you sona definitely and there are quite a few of course the first one that comes is the public health um we have that there, there is a shortage of uh, actually there is a there is a huge demand in this sector and the entire allied health health workers health workforce allied health workforce is something that has large share of women in all countries if we look at it even in india if we look at it we have allied healthcare workers where a large section and large share of that being women especially even in those conditions where we probably do not really want to uh, uh, talk about um, the conditions uh, in the rural areas but even there we find that it is women who are actually leading as allied health workers and there is a huge potential in the urban areas where women can be trained properly and that uh, ranges as you very rightly said that ranges from uh, domestic needs home needs to the entire uh, to the needs of specialized care and that is where we have that is one place which has a very large potential of absorbing and including women then comes the care sectors the care sectors are the sectors where uh, as you said again it is linked to the allied health workers but it is also a separate sector so nurses are part of the care sectors but there are also other carers that are needed 
carers needed for sick and elderly, carers needed for children. And the care economy is a very big economy in all markets, in, in I mean, the care, the, 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 in, in all countries, in all nations, the care economy is very uh, important. It is big and it forms a large part. If one can actually talk about markets operating within the care economy, expanding job opportunities in terms of um, expanding job opportunities within that uh, sector. For example, um, providing childcare facilities in the public-private sector, uh, public-private um, uh, partnership models. Those are places if you give quality childcare um, services. Those are sectors where you will, where one actually sees women participating in a large number. Apart from these traditional sectors, now these are traditional sectors because women are associated with care as caregivers and therefore care economy, care sectors like health, childcare, uh, teaching, all, the, all these spaces are, of, of course, can be expanded to uh, include more women. But when we also, there's a huge potential of women in the non-traditional sectors, the newer sectors as well, where which we are actually associating nowadays with the digital you know, uh, the digital revolution, which is being called as the fourth industrial revolution. Um, and um, in, in here, I find a lot of potential. I mean, in fact, the policymakers are also trying to understand how uh, they could do that by introducing, I mean, there are several new gigs that can be introduced in order to include more women into the work into the labor force by the uh, use of technology and digital. Um, uh, so therefore, I would say that there is a huge potential in this entire, um, uh, I mean, I know we miss the boat in terms of uh, expanding or integrating our garments. We miss the boat in terms of expanding and integrating our electronics industry. So we miss the boat on industrial expansion, but we are actually doing, a, doing very well in terms of our service growth even now, which is again being driven by this digital revolution that we are um, pushing for. And in that, there is a huge potential for women to be included, especially in the gig work that we con continuously keep talking about, where we can enable women entrepreneurs, we can enable women small scale businesses, we can even enable women to be part of um, uh, uh, multinational or big corporate platforms as partners, um, like we have for, um, uh, you know, just the one top of the mind example that comes out is for the urban company, where we have a lot of women using digital technology, using smart gadgets to be able to actually access income earning opportunities, and therefore also be part of the labor force, uh, labor force in the country. So there is a huge potential, but there are challenges in that because the digital gender digital literacy gap is very wide. And that needs to be closed if we are really moving from the traditional into the non-traditional sectors. So there is a potential of expanding the traditional sectors in ways that has not been uh, that has not happened in the past, and there is and there is a demand for that. And there are ways in which the new non-traditional uh, sectors for women can also be expanded for women by skilling them in the right direction. And it's a good sort of framing for us to talk about, uh, you know, the way we think about solutions. The first part, as you said, is existing traditional sectors where the social norms are acceptable, where it is already gender friendly. What can we do to scale it? As you rightly said, services plays 
in such models including healthcare teaching etc are useful uh, models for us to look at and especially now that we have looked at teaching as a gig profession uh, which is probably one of the biggest changes that has happened thanks to edtech and others where it's not connected to a school there's probably greater flexibility for employment for people uh, beyond the tuition circuit that used to be there and the school circuit that used to be there for teachers Uh, so that was one pathway, which is how do we unlock more opportunities in the traditional circuit. The second pathway that you talked about was how do we enable women opportunities in non-traditional industries and leverage some of the digital tailwinds that are there in the economy that are unlocking gig markets. You know, so that's the second model that I wanted to talk. I wanted to put a third pathway and really get your thoughts on this, Sona, which is we've also a lot of times when talked about talking about women labor force participation. talk about women entrepreneurship you know uh, how can we look at women as small business owners uh, you know or any form of entrepreneurs even if they're going to be at a small scale can they both employ themselves and create jobs in small ways for their local communities which possibly is a third way and i want to ask you a question on the third one before going into the second pathway which is the digital industry because i think it's important to unlock so i wanted to get your views since you've had a larger view on this issue saying are there parallels in enabling entrepreneurship among women at scale as a way of solving the labor force participation and i want to contextualize my question a little bit I I mean I'm an entrepreneur myself and I always see entrepreneurship as a high risk high gain model you know uh, what people often may not recognize when they talk about it is the amount of risk it takes to do anything on your own the capital that it uh, requires um, and also the support that it requires over a period of time for you to be able to sustain and grow the business and um, you know even when satpada had done an, a survey earlier around one of the studies that we did we recognize that almost all women who were becoming an entrepreneur were at least had a certain level of financial security and familial support for them to be able to make that move and i've always been skeptical about whether uh, you know in an environment where their participation in labor is so difficult and where precarious you know the financial situation is precarious is any form of entrepreneurship going to be a scalable model of enabling women labor force of course minds a very uh, you know uh, sensory understanding of this topic from the outside you've thought about it a lot more deeply so i'd love to hear your thoughts okay so two parts to your uh, so one is on entrepreneurship and other one is on how do we i mean the, the first part of your question so you know ratish one of the things that i would like to actually highlight here is um, the gaps when we want to move out from the traditional accepted sectors uh, as i said like care and and you know those uh, in in amongst those traditional sectors there are also those uh, very vulnerable sectors like domestic work and all where women are um, exploited a lot but there are they are also concentrated a lot because they are i mean all the domestic workers are in the in the in the in in uh, in india and and the uh, all of them are women uh, women coming from very very uh, poor households poor backgrounds and they are not exactly i mean they cannot be compared with the um, with those women who are actually out migrating from 
um, out-migrating internationally for domestic work. So when we see uh, uh, Indonesian and Filipino women serving um, households in Singapore or uh, in the Gulf countries, Sri Lankan women serving households in the Gulf countries, uh, the conditions and the remit the, the returns that they get, the conditions of work and the returns that they get are actually, uh, I mean, conditions of work may be debatable, but returns that they get and the way they are trained are much different and better in, in terms of how we look at our entire domestic, women domestic workers uh, segment, especially in the urban metropolitan areas. So what I'm seeing is there are gaps in skilling and training, not only for non-traditional digital gaps, but also for gaps that needs to be closed in these services that we have seen that can be done, uh, and that we have seen that can be upscale. I mean, upskilling, upskilling can happen in these traditional sectors as well to provide better conditions of work and better earning abilities, earning capacities to these, these women. There is also this entire element of, um, in the non-traditional, if you want to break out from these traditional sectors and talk about, there is not only the digital gap, the digital literacy gap that we are talking about. There is also the gap, uh, there are also gaps in terms of women's uh, other skills, you know, for example, platforms, uh, uh, the aggregator platforms like uh, the, cap, the cab services, the um, uh, food uh, home delivery services, the food delivery services, they are all dominated by men. And we find what we find is that wherever we have had localized interventions of training women to ride bikes or to ride two wheelers or uh, to drive four wheelers, it has actually helped in terms of them being able to get into those. So skilling is in, uh, I mean, what I'm talking, trying to say is skilling also has to be for women in non-traditional uh, sense. Skilling in, um, I mean, one can skill women in care, upgrade their skills, but one has to also let women enter those non-traditional skilling segments. And there, uh, one needs to not only uh, skill them and leave them at that, but they have to also um, be able the norms and the uh, uh, the norms have also to be changed. Rightly, when you said that women from Orissa moved to Bangalore, it never happened earlier, right? It is happening only when we find that actually there had been programs of the government where the apprenticeship of girls after being trained as apprentices in uh, the garment sector. Um, and then that apprenticeship actually linked themselves to the factories in Bangalore. And that is how the change started. And that is how it broke the norms. That is how policies worked. And that is how then the private sector took it up. So basically, there is a way in which we can capture the demands of the industries and uh, map it to the gaps that women have. And then they talk about putting women, uh, I mean, skilling women to close those gaps. Uh, on the other question, now entrepreneurship is a very different ballgame. It is, it is a very, very important engine for improving the women's labor force participation. And this, this is something that has not been tapped as a potential in our country. I'll give you one uh, uh, figure, uh, and this is a little old, but it has not changed much over the years. It is a 2014-15 figure where we found that women, um, those women who are actually termed as entrepreneurs are women who are running businesses just on their own without any hired workers. And uh, more than 80% of women's businesses are actually 
without any hired workers run by them, which actually shows the scale of business. Uh, small, but more secured. Women are risk averse. Surveys and studies have shown uh, surveys and studies trying to talk about um, training women into entrepreneurship have shown that women are less risk averse. Uh, women are more uh, risk averse. They try to get uh, into um, 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 live opportunities, which do not really, I mean, which which would give them some secured returns. And for that, they are all, I mean, for, for that, there has been a tendency of having businesses that are sustained at a very low scales, at a very low scale. It has not been able to upscale. So when we are talking about women's entrepreneurship in India, there is a long way to go in terms of being able to make the businesses sustainable, being able to um, scale up the businesses uh, that women run. It is very. It is very much in star. It, it, the, the the comparisons are very different when we make a male female comparison. The gender gaps in the entrepreneurship is very very stark. Uh, entrepreneurship has worked in uh, several countries of the global north, but in countries like India, where we still have women operating at nano and micro scales, where they cannot afford to really hire in workers, hire in their establishment, um, while there is a huge potential, uh, we, we at least cannot claim that entrepreneurship can become an engine of labor force uh, improvement in India immediately. There has to be a lot of, again, the infrastructural gaps have to be closed. The skill gaps have to be closed. Women need to be skilled in managerial and technical and accounting abilities. Women needs to be, uh, I mean, uh, Ivy's own work has shown uh, that um, when, when, even when women, uh, women establishment are actually more suited to hire women, women prefer more women. But there is also this part that women do not really prefer to hire in women. They want to remain at low scale, want to remain risk averse, want to remain into a scale where a secured rate of return comes through, comes to them for years so they, they can plan well. So there are many nuances when we talk about women's entrepreneurship. There are demand side issues, there are supply side issues, there are gaps. And there are also issues about access, access to capital, access to credits, access to, I mean, more access to um, working capital, in fact. So all of these things and the ways in which the saving mechanisms, uh, the investments mechanisms, skills, these exclude women, the knowledge that exclude women, there are there is a huge gap and there is a huge potential if we can close this gap and move ahead. One point I wanted to make is that I fully agree with you that to limit women's labor force participation only to the traditional sectors that we have uh, is definitely not a good strategy for us as a country. You know, I think to be able to open as many opportunities as possible, I think is critical. And, and I'm sure as you would agree, it's not an either or. I think we should do all of these. Uh, and as you were talking, I'm also realizing that the level of uncertainty um, in each of these pathways that we discussed, uh, you know, the, is going to be different. In a traditional pathway, the social norms are probably not as much of a challenge. The acceptability of women is not as much of a challenge. But as you rightly said, skilling is a challenge. The quality of decent work and the working conditions they might have is a challenge. And I think we need to address that. 
in the second model you know social norms is a challenge because you know access, getting women to access digital the industry acceptance is going to be a challenge and the skilling is going to be a challenge but if there was ever a time to be able to solve this problem it's probably now and i want to talk about the tailwinds there with you on the entrepreneurship side uh, you know as you said there is the mindset issue of not really looking at scale and employing people there is also the challenge of access to credit capital and then you know normative uh, challenges there there is also other you know external factors and internal skilling needs so the the level of uncertainty in entrepreneurship is probably the highest among the three pathways that we discussed you started by saying it's a very strong uh, you know engine of um, jobs and i would love to understand from you have you seen any pockets where it's working well you know where, where you know either in a state or in a sector or in a value chain or in a country outside of india uh, which is in the developing context comparable social milieu where entrepreneurship has created a significant value in terms of labor force participation of women because i think as you rightly said the potential is great but my only concern as i was listening to you is that the challenges seem far more than the first and the second pathway that we discussed so what we see is a large part of women's businesses are actually home based businesses mm. they are operating from their own home or adjacent uh, home sh- homestead lands you know homestead where there is a workshop and they are just working from there if the scale is a slightly slightly larger otherwise they are working from their home and what is this business about predominantly about the about uh, you know it is again it is part of the food processing culture it is part of the history in which women have actually processed their own uh, produces and here what we find is women making pickles women making papad uh women are engaged and and uh, in rolling agarbattis women are actually doing a whole lot of these businesses and they do it with the help of the self help groups so there is a whole uh, uh connection between the power of women's collectives and how well women get networked in terms of sustaining their businesses these small scale businesses they are very willing to be part of networks very willing to be part of collectives and do not really operate by themselves because the networks the collectives give them that financial security here we are talking about the large section of women uh, women small businesses who we are actually uh, who i mean who cannot be classified as entrepreneurs but that is what we have as a uh, women small business small business women that's this is where we are and this is where our energy should be in terms of training and what we find is manufacturing retail uh, food packaging education all of these sectors are the ones where we have women operating so sector wise if you are asking me what are the areas where women are working as uh, you know in in businesses are manufacturing uh, retail trade now what is retail trade again women petty retailers like you know owning a owning a cart owning a, a little uh, space in a market or owning a little space on the roadside where they are selling their vegetables or fishes or uh, some other wares then women into education like you know women having set up businesses of private tuition so or these are sectors where we find these small businesses the if we talk about exceptions here 
Now, the exception is a woman who would lie actually in the medium to the large. So we have examples of the likes of the uh, of Indra Nui or uh, Kiran Majumdar Shaw or the likes of our own, uh, the very Naika example. And uh, they, they are, again, at the very large scale, very, very large scale. What can be done, actually, is to inflate the middle and really help those small women businesses to move into that in middle, to transcend that nano and micro scale and move into the medium, medium scale. And that is going to really help to scale up and therefore create more job opportunities for others. Because as I said, that examples, women enterprises have a tendency of hiring more women. So that can then become an engine of labor force participation. We've been talking through this conversation about women uh, as an individual acting in the uh, in economy. So I think the pathway number one is uh, women working as an individual contributor, either as a person in a job and so on. But pathway number two was uh, women being leveraging the gig economy. Pathway number three um, is where we looked at women as a network, like you know, collective enterprises that can be formed. Is there a pathway number four where the family is the unit of uh, engagement and livelihood and women are an integral part of it where their rights are recognized, where we don't solve for women to part, uh, join work as an individual, but a family to join work where a woman is an equal uh, you know, participant in the economic activity. I know this has been a thought, uh, you know, uh, in certain parts where land holdings where women are equal participants uh, at work, but they're not often recognized. In my own experience, when I know that, uh, you know, in traditional business families, when men start jobs, women often start to contribute to that as well. What is the general thinking around looking at these models where the family is a unit that's participating in livelihood that in turn means women join the work as well? I'd love to hear your thoughts on both the upsides of such an idea and also potential downsides as well. So we do have a large share of women who are actually contributing to the family uh, enterprises. Those women are classified by the official labor force uh, statistics as unpaid family helpers. Mm. And, that, and the share of that uh, within the total uh, employment and of women is almost around 30%. So that's a huge share, right? Absolutely. Which actually means that there are ways in which women are contributing to the productive uh, economic gains. And, uh, but the downside of that is actually that earnings from family businesses or earnings for their own contribution to the family business is something that they do not really get, which is also a part, that which is also a fact that has come out from the service. It goes into the family. The earnings are as family earnings. It is not an individual earning. And what we see here is that women getting individual earning has a very, very different impact on the overall um, well-being of a household, on challenging the norms within uh, cultural practices within the household, has a very important impact on children. And therefore, um, uh, people like us who have spent a lot of time thinking about women's agency empowerment linked to, the, to their um, labor contributions, have have not really been enthused by the whole concept of unpaid family workers because the earnings 
our earnings do not come to the women. They do not have control over those earnings because when we see women have control over their own incomes, the expenditure patterns, the consumption patterns of households change. They get the, the expenditures are more on healthcare, on child children's care, children's education, which doesn't really happen when they do not have control over the earnings, over the incomes. And that is why I did, I, I, I did not uh, talk about that unpaid family work worker thing and it is a very personal opinion of mine um but an opinion which is endorsed by uh i mean which is also endorsed by a lot so we started by saying how countries with similar cultural milieu as us which is sri lanka bangladesh have uh you know over the last few decades been able to create opportunities for women and part of what they were able to do was to identify sectors of growth for their country which were women friendly and you created very specific pathways across, you know, training, enablement, etc. that enabled the women to unlock those opportunities when the demand was available. Classic example is the point you made about domestic help in Sri Lanka working abroad and how the state enabled pathways for them to be able to do it. Women in garments working in Bangladesh and so on. And we sort of made the point around how there are traditional industries that are ideally being friendly for women and how in India we've missed the boat in helping those industries grow that have had a direct impact in women labor force participation. We then moved on to saying there are non-traditional industries that are actually ideal for women to work in like the gig workers and so on, where access to specific skills and services can actually help them unlock those uh, opportunities at scale. And the digital economy today is a great example of that. We then moved on to talking about collective enterprises and saying how uh, looking at entrepreneurship as a model in cases where formal markets stop to work is a great opportunity and how these businesses might be dwarf businesses, they might not grow, but creating them at scale helps. And number two, there is the highest end unicorn models and then there are super nano models. How do we create a middle layer of enterprises that can actually create jobs for women, I think is critical. The last part we discussed was home-based models and you know you highlighted clearly uh, while that is 30% of the workforce today, there is an inherent system which disadvantages women in terms of uh, you know both calling out capital that they can call their own, uh, calling out work and standards of work that they have to maintain there and so on where I think and like I'm informally mentioning to you, maybe there's a part two to this conversation as well. Now, even if we sort of stick to the first three pathways, uh, Sonan, what we can do, one point you've constantly made, and I want to summarize a few things you've said so that you can build on it. Meaningful skilling is going to be very important. Skilling on technical roles uh, and skills, skilling on digital, skilling on business and accounting, skilling on, uh, you know, various aspects that enable women to be uh, effective. So that's one critical recommendation that you've highlighted multiple times in the conversation today, which I think is very relevant. Second, you've highlighted the idea of pathways. You know, when we spoke about uh, girls from Orissa coming to Kerala or coming to Karnataka, you talked about how apprenticeship models that connected to industry sort of eased the transition from training to apprenticeship towards formal employment, towards outbound migration, which ensured that there was a proper continuity between training and actual jobs. And so creating such pathways, especially in non-traditional industries, probably is going to be very, very important. 
I also wanted to get your thoughts on what other critical things and priorities do you think we should focus on as a country when we think about this problem so that we have a more holistic solution than piecemeal ideas that work individually. We did not touch upon the most important thing that actually enables women to access labor force participation, uh, access labor force, and that is actually uh, something uh, around the... I mean, it is not exactly the part of the cultural practices or norm, norms. It is, uh, but they are very much linked to each other. And it is the entire, um, you know, the model of women as primary caregivers of the economy. I mean, that kind of increases the whole, I would rather say there is this moral thing associated with women having to take care of all the household responsibilities. Now, if even if a woman is actually running her own business, is uh, empowered in her own right, the managing the household, taking care of children, deciding on uh, uh, the daily activities, planning for uh, uh, the day, planning for the meals, everything is something that a woman does. In, and, and that role is something that has not really changed over the years. And, um, and that is where we come to the thing about women's unpaid work. The time spent on doing these household management and household duties and the duties um, of the um, uh, duties of the elderly, sick and ch uh, children within the household takes away a whole lot of time for women. A time, if can be reduced uh, effectively by certain measures, can actually provide some more time, free time to women in order to be able to contribute meaningfully into the economy. And therefore, that is going to really raise uh, the labor force participation of women. So unpaid work has come up as a big barrier and a major issue for women to be able to access labor markets seamlessly. You shared the unpaid work and I'm saying that's such a longer, that's a much longer conversation uh, with you that I'd love to have at some point, which is the supply side. And I think it's important that you raised it. I was also wondering, since we've had a very strong demand focus so far, are there other demand side uh, interventions that can come in? We talked about skilling, we talked about pathways. Uh, are there other things that we need to do? You know, for example, I know access to credit has come up, uh, but is there something that industry has to do, others have to do as well? And I think it's just touching upon that. Yeah, will be. Yeah. So there's something. There are quite a few things that can be done, other than you know I touched upon unpaid work. But you know, in order to expand and include more women into the labor force, I think one of the important uh, things that we keep talking about is women-friendly policies to expand employment. What could be those women-friendly policies, actually? Because the moment we talk about women-friendly policies, one of the important things that come up is uh, provide women with maternity benefits, provide women with the benefits that, uh, um, you know, uh, provide women with packages that come with uh, ideal maternity entitlements, uh, which is about, um, you know, providing leaves to women. It is not only about maternity leave, it is also about um, being able to, um, you know, um, for industries, especially the small, small, uh, small businesses, it is very difficult sometimes to incur the cost of maternity leaves when they employ women and that acts against or acts as a uh, that that really uh, acts as a, um, uh, a disincentive for enterprises to employ women. Um, while we have legislative protections 
for providing women workers with their due rights on maternity entitlements. Those are uh, those entitlements to be implemented successfully by industries. The, there has to be policies which are again backed by uh, suitably backed by uh, legislations or suitably backed by government interventions. And here I'm really saying that uh, if we want and, and, and these are things that need a start from the government um, an intervention from them where the intervention would actually show uh, be able to successfully prove that including women are not harming the enterprises. For example, what I'm trying to say is the idea that if I employ a woman and the woman goes on a 26 weeks leave after uh, one childbirth, then that is going to incur huge costs. But if I am able to sustain that cost and keep the woman for a longer period of time and show that there is a high rate of uh, returns by having employed that woman, that those and those are longer term things and those need in, uh, interventions from, from government. What kind of interventions are we talking about? Incentivizing, incentivizing industries, incentivizing sectors where, uh, I mean, some amount of uh, Incentives can come in many forms, actually, providing um, uh, short tax breaks, providing um, uh, for, for, for uh, employing more women, providing subsidies uh, in some forms for including more women into their own sectors or into those industries. Now, it is not for all industries. It can be for specific industries where we do have potential of including women. Now, that is one part. The second, women-friendly infrastructure. So if we have uh, if we have uh, proper wash conditions in the that is uh, water sanitation hygiene conditions in the office and the factory premises for women, uh, those are actually one of the important factors uh, which kind of uh, um, which kind of helps women take decisions whether to work in that workplace or in the factory or not. Um, workplace safety. Now we have legal provisions of workplace, uh, uh, legal provisions to back, um, to, to save women from sexual harassment at workplace. The act is there, the 2013 act, but the implementation has to be there, successful implementation, making workplaces free from sexual violence, make, making workplaces free of any kind of violence. Uh, also making the commute to work seamless by providing proper safe transport facilities, continuous regular transport facilities. So there is a whole lot of gender-friendly infrastructure, women-friendly infrastructure that can be in place in terms of bringing in or attracting more women into the workforce, into the labor force. Uh, by transport, uh, there are examples about, um, say there are specific fixed time of women's uh, specific that there are always specific times for commutes for uh, office goers or factory goers. And if in those times there are uh, the transport facilities actually are hyped to uh, 
include, I mean, to provide safe spaces for women, that actually helps because otherwise women do not want to access public transport because the level of harassment, the level of violence in those public transport are often so high that one is women do not really want to travel. And second, the members of the household also do not really want women to travel in those spaces unless and until it is terribly required. So, of course, one is providing women with their maternity entitlements. And the second is providing women-friendly infrastructure, women-friendly policies, the you know, providing flexibility of timings to women, uh, because women really prefer flexi flexible timings for their uh, work. So if, if there is a woman who has a child who goes to school and uh, would like to really have time off from work when the child returns from school, and that may fall under the normal office hours, but if there are flexible timings, the woman can take off from that part and then add those hours later in the time when she's available for uh, office work or uh, productive work. So these are some of the uh, things that can be done. No, thank you, Sona. And I think all of these are very, very uh, you know, valid points. Uh, as we near the end of the conversation, one of the thoughts that, that's uh, you know, staying with me is a lot of these seem obvious uh, in terms of what needs to be done to make it work. But the incentives in the system to make it happen uh, across industry and government and others is really the, the challenge today. And I also wonder, uh, you know, the sequence with which we need to do this, uh, you know, uh, I once went to a cement factory plant uh, recently and I, I saw that there was no, uh, you know, toilets for women and a colleague of mine who traveled with me had to use a gents toilet to be able to do it because they had just no women, you know. So I was also wondering in what order do these changes happen uh, for us to make it work, for us to hit that right sequence of dominoes for it to, cry, you know, hit. Um, but I know that we are at the end of time. And uh, one of the things that I'm going to go back with after our conversations, really knowing all that we know about this, how do we sequence this right so that the incentives of the market, incentives of the government and the incentives of the individuals actually align for us to make this change happen. There is so much more that I wanted to actually discuss with you, uh, you know, from uh, the point on de decent work that you had maintained uh, earlier. And I think the difficult trade-off that we often have in ensuring decent work and ensuring employment at scale for women, which I think multiple countries even that have employed women at scale continue to face. There is the supply side constraint. We talked about unpaid work. That's really the top of the iceberg. There is this entire conversation around agency, aspiration of women. How does it change and how has it evolved in rural and urban India? There is a conversation on the sectors themselves that I wanted to go deeper in, which only means that we definitely have to do the part two of this conversation at some point. But I really want to thank you for your time. It's really great to have someone who's thought so much about this issue, can bring these nuances to these conversations, highlight the possibilities and the challenges as well. Uh, and I do hope that the folks listening to the podcast enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much. I hope uh, it is useful and I hope it is uh, um, enjoyable as well. You have been listening to Decoding Impact. To learn more about Sattva and Sattva Knowledge Institute, please explore sattva.co.in. We invite you to like, share and subscribe to Decoding Impact so you never miss out on new episodes. Thank you for joining us.